Hello and welcome to a new episode of Interpreting India. From geopolitical complexities to economic uncertainties, India faces critical challenges in its quest for a more prominent role on the world stage. This season, we at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology, the economy, and international security in shaping India's future. South Asia is an interesting and complex region. It consists of countries as geographically, culturally, and politically diverse as Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, but also Afghanistan and Myanmar. Typically, India has been considered the power most capable of exercising its influence in the region. Yet, in recent years, there has been another power that has laid claim to South Asia as part of its periphery and has sought to expand its influence in the region. For the past decade and a half certainly, China has made deeper and deeper inroads into South Asia, offering capital and infrastructure, but also deepening political ties and people-to-people relations. But why does China care about South Asia? And what are its interests in the region? How exactly has it sought to engage the region in order to protect its interests? And what sort of influence has that resulted in? Joining us today to discuss this topic is Professor Jabin Thomas Jacob. Professor Jacob is Associate Professor at the Department of International Relations and Governance Studies at the Shivnadar Institute of Eminence. He is a non-resident fellow at the Center for Social and Economic Progress and adjunct research fellow at the National Maritime Foundation, New Delhi. Dr. Jacob holds a PhD in Chinese Studies from the School of International Studies, Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi, and has spent time as a researcher in Taiwan, France, and Singapore. His research interests include Chinese domestic politics, China-South Asia relations, Sino-Indian border areas, Indian and Chinese worldviews, and center-province relations in China. Professor Jacob, welcome to Interpreting India. Thank you, Saab. Uh, pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. So, let me start with the drivers of China's foreign policy in South Asia. What are China's considerations and since when did we begin to see the increased interest that we have in recent years? And as I ask this, are there even pan-South Asian considerations for China's foreign policy in the region? How much are they to do with China's regional and global ambitions, Allah as the voice of the global south? And how much are they to do with India and India-China relations? All right. Um, so that's... Uh complex basket of questions to start off with, but let me uh, start with the drivers. Uh, so the drivers uh, are at least three or four. One, of course, uh, South Asia is part of China's neighborhood. Uh, this is something that the Chinese have been emphasizing for a few decades now. Uh, it was not always the case that South Asia was part of the Chinese imagination, or at least the Chinese foreign policy imagination. But it has become so increasingly, I think, since the beginning of the century, at least. Uh, the other is, of course, uh, as China has grown in power, uh, it has also want its, its ambitions, global ambitions and regional ambitions have grown uh, as part of its competition with the United States. And therefore, as part of that competition, it sees... Uh, Presence in South Asia and influence in South Asia is very much uh, necessary in that competition. Uh, third, uh, I mean, South Asia is a market. Uh, and here, India is a central uh, player, of course, because the Indian market is the largest market. And this is uh, 
well, not really traditional Chinese foreign policy because if one would generally associate traditional Chinese foreign policy with hard power politics and security interests and so on. But look, Chinese, the Chinese economy is the second largest in the world and it has gotten there by expressing interest and being ready to get involved in all regions of the world. And clearly it cannot ignore such a large market right next door, right? Uh, but there's also, I think, I would add a fourth reason, which is China's domestic politics uh, and China's domestic considerations. Uh, you know, its angst, its insecurity over control over Tibet, um, its questions of uh, you know uh, dealing with diversity of opinion and thought inside China, and the example that South Asia provides in this context. South Asia is an extremely diverse region, and yet, um, you know, despite, you know, maybe difficulties in promoting or running democracies in South Asia, South Asia just still overall has the impression of a largely democratic setup, especially with India right in the middle of it. So this is an example uh, or a, a, a sort of a model that Chinese citizens, uh, uh, especially uh, Tibetans and Uyghurs also will follow. So that's, again, a consideration for the Chinese. You know, how do, for the Communist Party of China, to be more specific, how do you deal with this uh, example, this model from across the border? So for all those reasons, the Chinese need to pay attention to uh, South Asia uh, and uh, India, and their foreign policy is sort of molded around uh, these considerations. Um, you know, the second part of your question, whether China has a, you know, looks at a pan-South Asia uh, approach, I think that's an interesting question because uh, firstly, it's sort of pan-South Asia is very difficult for countries that are out of the region to look at because India is sort of the uh, the central player. If you look at South Asia and, you know, none of the countries have a border with each other. Uh, directly other i mean except for india uh, they don't have a border with each other and if you sort of expand the definition of south asia then you could say well yes pakistan and afghanistan have a border and bangladesh and myanmar have a border but otherwise they're all disconnected from each other except through india so uh, and you know the indian population the indian market size by whole criteria set of criteria india is far and away uh, ahead of the remaining south asian powers so i mean I uh, you know some have talked about going back to this expression Indian subcontinent. Now the Chinese are you know big on maps and geography, so I think they understand the centrality of India. Um, you, and if they have a pan-South Asian approach, then I think one of the features is that they understand the centrality of India and they realize that the in, that each of the countries in South Asia, the other countries in South Asia, have an India factor in their foreign policies and sometimes even in their domestic policies and certainly in their economic, uh, econ in their, in the case of the economies. So when China crafts an approach to South Asia, it has to actually consider uh, the India factor. Having said that, um, uh, which is to say that India certainly uh, uh, a primary consideration when China talks about span South Asia engagement, uh, as I said, the competition with the United States, China's global ambitions mean that with or without India in the picture, the Chinese have to 
or need to engage with individual countries and you know one of the first examples was south uh, with in south asia was pakistan the chinese have this all weather friendship with pakistan but you would notice that it's only since 2014 with the china pakistan economic corridor uh, or 2015 uh, that the china pakistan relationship also got to the next level uh, you know and the chinese took a major risk uh, trying to diversify they are very comfortable political military relationship with pakistan to the economic relationship which then involved you know ordinary people as well uh so the other feature of the pan south asia approach i would say or what which is actually common to other parts of the world but especially visible in south asia is that the chinese are reaching out beyond political elites and economic elites to uh local populations and so you see a great deal of investment in social media public outreach public diplomacy and so on also happening in south asia so it's a bit of both china has global ambitions uh it sees what the united states is doing in terms of outreach to both political elites as well as the ordinary masses and it also has to deal with the india question so in recent years uh when india china relations have sort of worsened how has that uh, played out in terms of competition in south asia competing for influence in these countries so um i wouldn't say that um the worsening of india china relations necessarily uh affected china's approach to south asia i think china was very clear that it wanted to get involved in south asia with or without india um india is a factor but uh what has happened with the worsening of india china relations is that um where before smaller south asian countries could play the china card or the india card against these two countries a little more uh, i mean a little more casually or say um, easily this has become harder because now it's sort of you are either with us or against us kind of a position that uh, well maybe not expressly stated but essentially is what is communicated i think to the regional capitals um how does that increase china's involvement in south asia i think uh, you know despite the many difficulties with the china pakistan economic corridor despite the instability in pakistan despite you know uh, all the problems that pakistan comes with the chinese have been forced to double down on their pakistan bets i'm not sure that they're entirely comfortable with it or, or especially not, not especially the uh, the economic elites who have to deal with pakistan you know through the cpec uh but elsewhere where countries are a little more um, stable like say in bangladesh i would say that uh, uh, you know the the chinese are fairly comfortable and bangladesh because of its the strength of its uh, well political stability i think is able to play uh, the india china cards fairly sophisticatedly i mean without really pushing anybody to the edge and mind you uh, i think uh, uh, bangladesh uh, you know follow in the the political dispensation in bangladesh has support from both the indians and the chinese so that's there's that uh, also other places like sri lanka i would say that 
again, you know, the Chinese got involved, uh, they pick sides, uh, and they're still learning. You know, they are, they tend to pick sides, uh, depending on whoever is in power. Uh, and then, you know, there is always blowback given elections and election results, etc. And so, uh, I would say, uh, the Chinese are still in a process of learning as to how to deal with the complexity, the complex polities uh, of South Asia. Uh, so I, I, I think, um, you know, they are getting there, but they're not yet there. And this then allows, uh, I mean, this then imposes certain limits on how much an India-China competition can affect, uh, uh, you know, Situation, the situation in the South, South Asian countries, or even how far China can go in trying to build up muscle in South Asia, let's say, against India. That's very interesting. And uh, I want to pick up on something you mentioned. So you talked about the risks in the China-Pakistan relationship. Now, we in India, uh, given the sort of specter of the two-front threat, I don't think we appreciate uh, how China sort of sees the, let's say, the drawbacks of its relationship with Pakistan. And so you mentioned that they're forced to double down. So could you sort of elaborate on how China sees the relationship with Pakistan, particularly with the downsides? So, um, you know, before I get there, uh, let me say two things uh, on this. I mean, you mentioned the two-front threat. So in India, we sort of tend to swing between extremes. I think on the one hand, we think the two-front threat is extreme, it's pretty serious, and therefore it sort of hobbles us in terms of our approaches to China. On the other hand, uh, in some cases, we have extreme confidence, as in we we can deal with the problem of Pakistan separately or uh, that this does not really uh, impact us. I mean, we can ignore Pakistan altogether. And what I would say is that... uh, this is a mistake. This sort of uh, two extremes, uh, both extremes are uh, are problematic. And um, even if, to answer your question, there are all these downsides to the China-Pakistan relationship. The problem is because of this approach that we have of these two extremes, we are not actually in a position to take advantage of those downsides. Right. So having said that, let me come to the downsides which the Chinese see. Uh, So like I said at the beginning, the Chinese took a risk diversifying from a fairly comfortable elite level relationship. When they launched the CPEC, uh, you know, they made these large claims about employment generation, uh, you know, uh, pushing forward the mantra of stability, economic stability in Pakistan, then leading to political stability and so on. Now, if you look at the record 10 years later, none of that has happened. Uh, And what is interesting is not that this is being stated by Indians or Americans or anybody else outside. It is being stated by the Pakistanis themselves. So now you have a class of people in Pakistan, both at the elite level as well as ordinary uh, people that see the results of Chinese uh, intervention or Chinese engagement in Pakistan and say, well, look, they have not delivered the results. Right. Uh, The Pakistanis, first of all, started off with this figure, a huge figure of $46 billion investment in in, uh, through the CPEC. The Chinese at no point ever said or gave that figure. Right. The Pakistanis expected millions of jobs to be created. Now, just last year, the last figure that the Chinese ambassador uh, or a Chinese official, I think uh, the Chinese ambassador has just joined, but the DCM or uh, and the ambassador before mentioned was just $25 billion worth of investment. 
and a few hundred thousand jobs. Now, that kind of a ratio between investments and jobs is essentially what you would see in a high-tech industry, right? Uh, where you need large capital investments, but uh, the number of jobs are very low. Now, Pakistan is still a very developing country. It does not have this kind of high-skill labor. So where is the money going and why is it that this for this money, there isn't enough jobs being created? Not only that, under the first first phase of the China-Pakistan FTA, Pakistan actually lost jobs to China. Several industries from Pakistan actually relocated to China. So whatever the CPEC was trying to bring in, in terms of investments and jobs, uh, they were barely compensating for stuff that the Pakistanis had already lost. So there's been a great deal of uh, propaganda, shall we say, uh, around CPEC in terms of what CPEC has contributed to Pakistan. And now the Pakistan, the Chinese themselves are saying that these, and these are figures that I'm quoting from the Chinese, not these inflated figures that Pakistani politicians sometimes put out. In addition to that, the Chinese have found Pakistan extremely unsafe. Now you have a larger number of Chinese coming in and Chinese have been killed, Chinese have been kidnapped. And the Pakistan army, Pakistan security agencies are not in a position to stop it. Uh, the Pakistan army has raised its whole new division, I think, for specifically for the purpose of guarding the CPEC. Uh, now, that's also money the Pakistan is spending. And, and yet, really, uh, I, I don't think, well, maybe you could argue that there could have been more kidnappings or more killings of Chinese, but those haven't happened. But in places like Baluchistan, which is a sort of a key node, the Gwadar port, for example, is a key node of the CPEC project. Uh, I mean, these tensions continue. And in Gwadar especially, you know, the locals have up in arms with Chinese uh, blocking access to the seas, fishermen, fishing rights being denied. I mean, Gwadar is a sort of a fenced out area. Okay. Uh, And so in many respects, if the idea was for the Chinese to build cache with ordinary Pakistanis, that's not happened. Uh, Pakistan's economy is in a mess. Pakistan's politics is in a mess. And the Chinese are sort of left, uh, you know, uh, befriending this uh, country without actually quite getting the returns I think they would expect. In fact, the Chinese probably get more bang for the buck in Bangladesh. Bangladesh has gotten $37 billion worth of investment, or at least that's the sort of projected figure when Xi Jinping visited. And I'd, I'd, I'd imagine a lot more of that is happening on the ground in, in uh, Bangladesh than is the case in Pakistan. One uh, very interesting, uh, I think, reflections on the China-Pakistan relationship. Uh, something you picked up on was basically something that I noticed, employment generation, infrastructure, investment, but also engagement with ordinary folks. These are some of the things... Uh, we know that China sort of utilizes in its outreach to the region. And so here I want to turn to sort of the methods and means of engagement that China utilizes. Uh, we, there may not be one Chinese playbook across the region, or maybe there is, uh, I'll leave it to you. But how does it decide what sector to enter in what country and which tools to use, you know, ground up or through elites or through corporations? If you can tell us a bit, a bit about that. So the Chinese will use whatever they have at hand. And, you know, it's basically an approach of covering your bases, that if one doesn't work, one approach doesn't work, we have something else to fall back on. Uh, Having said that, 
you know, uh, in the Chinese foreign ministry, the Chinese military, they sort of developed this cadre of specialists on South Asia. So if you look at the Chinese diplomatic cadre, for example, they sort of move around South Asia in general. So you have an Indian amb- Chinese ambassador to India, often having served in India before, or having served in Pakistan or elsewhere in the neighborhood. So it's sort of, they have this South Asia cadre and so on. That is not necessarily, that does not necessarily mean that they are correct in all their assessments. Like I said, they're still learning. Uh, But these people are sort of, you know, off way or savvy with generally what is going on. That's one. Um, So a lot of how they approach depends also on the specificity of the country involved. Like in Pakistan, for example, you have a long political and military relationship. So the military to military ties is extre- ties are extremely important. Uh, the, the Pakistani uh, Army, Navy, Air Force chiefs keep visiting uh, China. The Chinese send usually not just their defense minister, but their vice chairman of the Central Military Commission. So he's higher ranked than the defense minister, often visiting Pakistan. There's an exchange of awards, etc. that they give to keep this military relationship in good uh, stead. Just kind of like how the Indian and the Nepalese Army chiefs are considered as honorary chiefs. I mean, they don't exactly have that system in the Pakistan-China case, but, you know, there's all these uh, awards and medallions sort of given away quite frequently. Um, In Nepal, if you think about it, uh, I mean, if you look at it, uh, the Nepalese Communist Party uh, has been in power for a while now, and the Chinese said, okay, we are going to use this uh, common identity of communist parties across both countries to develop our links. Mind you, the Chinese did not support the Maoists when they were in their uh, revolution against the monarchy. At that time, they were completely backing the monarchy. But as soon as the monarchy disappeared and the choice was between the communists and the Nepalese uh, Congress, they realized that the Nepalese Congress was more aligned with India and therefore they had to back the, the other horse in the race as it were. So there the Chinese have actually uh, conducted these uh, training sessions for uh, the political parties. I mean, on Xi Jinping thought uh, training sessions for the Nepalese communists, right? Uh, So the Chinese also have this approach of dealing with these political parties. In in Sri Lanka, they've done these collective uh, sessions. The Chinese Communist Party's international leaders and department have done these sessions collectively on various occasions. You know, the anniversary of the founding of Sri Lanka-China relations, for example, and all political parties in Sri Lanka are sort of attending this. I mean, online, uh, but, you know, even the, the heads of parties attended. Practically everybody is in. In Bangladesh, uh, you know, Sheikh Hasina has been in power for a very long time. So they approach Sheikh uh, Hasina um, um, directly. Uh, they are constantly engaged with our ministers and, you know, they do these uh, special projects, shall we say? For example, uh, the Bangabandhu uh, Tunnel in Chittagong Hill Track. So this is a project that is named after Sheikh Hasina's father, and the Chinese are sort of uh, supporting this project in a big way. So they have these uh, they have these institutional linkages. They have these personal uh, uh, approaches, and so on. And you know. Over the last few years, they have decided that they are not only going to engage with the ruling parties, they're also going to engage with the opposition parties. So they're sort of uh, learning to deal with democracy or complex democracies uh, in South Asia. Um, And they're very quick to sort of change 
position i mean when uh, you know if if uh, uh, the rajapaksa has lost power and sirisena comes to power in sri lanka they were quick to approach sirisena with uh, goodies and in one point the chinese ambassador um, uh, approached sirisena said look you have 300 million dollars do with it what you like all right so that's the kind of uh, approach the chinese ambassador made and talking about the chinese ambassador at that point in time the chinese uh, communist party has a branch called the united front work department and interestingly enough south asia has seen the most number in my view i mean from what i see in the indian ocean region at least south asia has seen more numbers of ambassadors from the united front work department than from the professional cadre in the ministry of foreign affairs so at one point uh, the previous ambassador to pakistan uh the last two ambassadors to sri lanka uh, uh, no two ambassadors ago this guy chang shoyan who was during sirisena's time and two ambassadors before in sri lanka in bangladesh they were all from the united front work department so that's something interesting so what that implies is simple that china is paying a little more attention to south asia than usual which is you know in our case we have political appointees as ambassadors or the united states sends political appointees to give the impression that the president or the prime minister is particularly interested in this particular relationship so that's what they do i think with the united front work department as well because these ambassadors i mean the united front work department ranks higher than the foreign ministry in china because it's a party organ so that so that are these bunch of interesting approaches that the chinese take uh, in south asia couple of things to draw on so you said there's cadres of specialists on south asia there's ambassadors from the united front works department so uh can you shed some light on the relationship between various actors in the chinese uh not just administrative machinery but sort of foreign policy making system and how they coordinate with each other to execute south asia policy and uh, i would at the, on this point i would also include maybe the state owned enterprises and various let's say pseudo private actors who carry out this engagement okay so i'm sure i'm going to miss out on a few things but broadly the first uh, important consideration uh, or the f- important point that to keep we have to keep in mind is that we are talking of a party state right and increasingly under xi jinping the party element of the party state has come to the fore so in many ways uh, as i showed in this case of the united front work department and the mofa uh, the institutional state institutional structures are becoming weaker or less important right um so this is the first element that i think is on visit, uh, you know on view uh, increasingly not just in south asia but across the across the world uh, so the party is a principal element and party act party organs like the international liaison department as we saw in the case of nepal or the united front work department as we saw in the case of bangladesh sri lanka and pakistan these ambassadors uh, these are important players uh, and only then does mofa come similarly i mentioned in the case of the defense ministry the chinese defense minister is pretty low ranked in their system of things i mean in here in india for example the cabinet committee on security the defense minister is a part of it so he is among the top four officials in the country uh ministers or political leaders in the country uh in the case of the chinese defense minister i mean he's nominally only number 4 in their hierarchy in terms of defense matters he is the chairman of the central military commission 
which is a party uh, and st- i mean it's a party organ which is also mirror in the state chairman is the general secretary of the party which is xi jinping and you have two vice chairman and only then does this guy come all right if at all he's number 4 um so these are elements that we have to keep and remember the the the, the chinese pla is a army of the party it is not the army of the state so uh, you know which means that its primary job is to protect the regime in power okay uh, and you know this whole emphasis that xi jinping has on anti corruption etc is essentially a domestic dynamic so you have these party organs uh, you have the state structures such as the mofa and in the case of the bri you have something called the national development reform commission uh, which is the sort of a nodal agency for all bri projects it in the in the past we could have said it is equivalent of our planning commission uh, because it is such a powerful body uh, it is practically autonomous in many ways but we don't have a planning commission anymore we have something of a subset of the planning commission in terms of the niti aayog so uh, the ndrc uh, the state council which is headed by the premier the uh, mofa then you as you mentioned correctly the state owned enterprises in the chinese system state owned enterprises also are big players in their own right um so the state owned enterprises are not often controlled by the mofa uh, or you know state institutions uh, they are also more subservient to the party and and often until recently they pretty much did their own thing i mean you have cases in uh, during hu jintao administration where hu jintao went into countries like sudan just to do firefighting because something or the other the state owned enterprise would engage in uh, but under xi jinping all of this is now extremely controlled so and again as you rightly pointed out these are there are these pseudo private enterprises i mean there is actually no private sector uh, in china i mean within the chinese economy there might be these private players but when they operate externally they are completely beholden to the party state apparatus and work according to those uh, uh their their uh, instructions so um the other big player are the provinces provinces and state city governments i mean for an authoritarian unitary state the chinese are far more federal in many ways than the indian state the indian republic so provinces in china have a great degree of freedom in foreign policy economic e- foreign economic policy making right and now you even see the case where tibet despite all the you know uh, unrest or instability in tibet tibet is now being encouraged to build linkages through the bri with nepal uh, so and uh, xinjiang despite instability there again is a key player in china's outreach to central asia so you have provinces city city governments because of their sister city partnerships etc are all players uh and through the ufwd uh, the china the chinese communist party is also using diaspora uh, especially in places like australia and new zealand to take over traditional chinese media uh, to build political influence in the australian or the new zealand setup i mean i say australia new zealand especially because this is where the chinese uh, influence through the diaspora has become the strongest so there are all of these actors uh, i would say yeah I think that was a very uh, useful rundown. You mentioned the BRI a few times, so I do have a couple of questions on that. So, um, two sort of recent trends. One, you had the third Belt and Road Forum, which was held in Beijing in October 2023, and when there's been talk of the BRI, Chinese leadership has spoken about high quality development. 
and so what how do what does that imply in terms of engagement for south asia what does high quality development mean and sort of what were your takeaways from the recent uh, belt and road forum that was held um to start with the third belt and road forum uh, you know i think it's a considerably scaled down effort you know we have a very few fewer participants fewer heads of state attending the third belt and road forum compared to the first and the second one right i mean it has actually progressively declined so that's one thing i think that's a that sort of you know implies a few things one people are wisening up all right um, and they realize that the belt and road initiative has not delivered uh two it could also be that the chinese are beginning to see or look for other options and so on right it's not just only about this but they have now other maybe arrows in the quiver uh or uh they also feel constrained to uh put in less effort but i would say it would be it's more about uh diversifying and thinking of other options because the chinese in the last 3 years have launched what i call our subsets of the belt and road initiative okay or sort of or well not subsets perhaps but scaling up of the belt and road initiative through the global development initiative the global security initiative and the global civilization initiative so the global development and this global security initiatives i think were pretty much evident in the belt and road itself i mean development was a very you know infrastructure development and economic development as a uh, as a panacea uh, to deal with political instability this was always the case but now uh, under the development gdi and the, the the idea is to sharpen the focus on specific projects and so on uh the global security initiative i think they've just now more confident in articulating a security uh, uh vision for themselves uh they are much more confident 10 years down the line to start talking about security issues they are much more certain that uh, competition with the united states cannot be avoided or cannot be hidden away anymore so basically by talking with gsi they are also forcing trying to force countries to choose right pick sides uh the global civilization initiative i think is very interesting because this is a sort of an intangible right what do you mean by civilization what do you mean by uh, a global civilization initiative i think here is where people are sort of failing to pay enough attention uh because i think this is a serious part of the bri and of the chinese foreign policy for the foreseeable future which is about saying chinese civilization chinese culture the chinese political model is somehow better than all others and you know for all the talk of non interference in each others i mean others internal affairs the so called punch punch shield principles the chinese are now beginning to say look if we want to be a global power we have to act and think and behave like the americans do which is we have to promote a particular ideology we have to promote a particular world view and that is what the gci is all about the global civilization initiative uh, and you know in typical fashion uh it's all about saying somehow something that is chinese is better uh in fact there is this uh, interesting development that is happening in uh, uh you know statements about india and china where they will mention that india and china are ancient civilizations great civilizations but at one point they will say that china is a civilization more than 5000 years old they will not say the same thing over india so you know you see where this is going so certain parochial approach and to talk about high quality development 
I think uh, if I were to put it in very simple terms, uh, I think this is an acknowledgement that China has limited resources to expend at a time of economic crisis and economic doldrums in China. And instead of saying that we have less money to give, uh, you know, you change the sort of lingo or you, you change the narrative by saying it's high quality development, which is to say, well, I'm not going to give you money for everything that uh, you ask me money for, but I'll put it in a few ins- instances. And I will say this is high quality to make it look like well, those are the most worthwhile projects. That's all there is to it. Yeah. So in terms, you already spoke about the economy. Um, so I want to turn to a few specific relationships in the region. Uh, you know, so Maldives, Mohammed Muizu was elected president towards the end of 2023. And, you know, recent events in India-Maldives relations and also the joint communique that China and Maldives came out with in January uh, I think one can safely conclude this government is tilting somewhat heavily towards China. But could you sort of elaborate on what sort of relationship Muzu's party and his government sort of share with China? I mean, his uh, uh, predecessor uh, Soli was, of course, uh, seen as pro-India. But then Soli's predecessor Yamin, from whom uh, uh, Muzu has, uh, you know, I mean, the same party, uh, so Yamin was clearly pro-China, and uh, but I would say Muizu is playing it a little more smartly than Yamin did. Yamin went all uh, you know hell for uh, leather kind of an approach in tilting entirely towards China, and so which meant that India also had to react and respond accordingly. But Muizu has been careful in the sense I see that his first official visit was to Turkey, right? And then he had a multilateral event in the United Arab Emirates before he finally went to the uh, went to China. Um, so I think there is a signal. So he didn't go to India as is the tradition, but he also didn't go to China. Uh, and I think uh, you know these smaller countries, you have to give them credit. I mean, they are also uh, you know learning the ropes, shall we say, or they also have the agency to chart their own paths amidst all these, uh, I mean, amidst India-China competition. And mind you, it's not just India and China that are competing in South Asia or are the big players in South Asia. The United States is. The European Union, European Union is trying to maybe, you know, make its presence felt. And the Turks are, you know, getting into Indonesian in a big way. I mean, I think recently it was announced that the Turks are going to be uh, patrolling Somali waters in agreement with the Somalians. So uh, there are other players and these smaller countries are beginning to make use of these other players. Uh, Now, of course, these 20 agreements that Moizu signed uh, during his visit to China also speak, uh, I mean, of a particular intent and are are a message. I mean, firstly, the number the volume, 20 agreements, and also the range of issues covered. You know, you had the Maldives signing on pretty much on the global development uh, initiative and the BRI, all of that was mentioned. Um, then uh, you have a great emphasis on the blue economy, fisheries, climate change, which are all issues of concern for the Maldives. Uh, so uh, there is all that uh, as well. Uh, but India also, I mean, it's not as if the, you know, Moizu has been, I mean, Moizu has these parliamentary elections coming up, which is why he wants the Indian 
um, personnel to leave. I mean, uh, but the Indians have also managed, in a sense, you could say that the Maldivians and the Indians managed to compromise by saying some Indian personnel will leave before the elections and some will leave only in May. Now, the challenge is, Moizu says that these are being removed. These Indian aircraft platforms and the Indian personnel are being removed completely. Whereas the Indian statement of the MEA says that these are being replaced. So we still have to find out what exactly is the situation there. The Chinese uh, research vessel uh, just arrived in the Maldives port. They did not get permission to go to Sri Lanka, but they went to Maldives. But the Maldives was very clear saying they are really coming here for rest, I mean, refueling. They're not coming here to do any research. But uh, this might be uh, something that India needs to pay attention to closely. Uh, you know, there are a couple of other issues of concern. There was an observatory that the Chinese sort of had uh, sort of inked uh, under Yamin, which the Soli government uh, sort of set aside. The free trade agreement again was set aside. Whether Muizu will go back to the free trade agreement to relaunching this observatory, uh, these are all things that India needs to uh, watch uh, carefully. But as of now, I would say uh, Muizu is being careful and I think he understands that in, in a crisis, India is the closest power. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, something that uh, in 2021, Carnegie also came out with a report on China and South Asia. I think one of the takeaways there was that countries have agency and they are smarter than uh, powers in the region, be they India, China or the United States make them out to be. And they are learning from each other. So my next question is about another South Asian state, Bhutan. So Bhutan and China, their boundary negotiations have picked up pace in recent times and there are concerns in India and elsewhere about how this relationship is evolving. Uh, It's a very uh, understudied relationship and not much is known about it. Would you be able to shed some light? Um, Well, you know, I'm also not an expert on India-Bhutan, but I would look simply at the structural realities here. Um, the Bhutanese have a long-standing boundary dispute with the, with the Chinese. And while there is this talk of a package deal in which the Bhutanese uh, retain the, the sacred territories in the north, uh, which are of importance to them in exchange for giving away a little bit more of the uh, portion, the territory that is aligned to the Chumbi Valley, uh, the, the Indians obviously will not come to use that, right? And the Bhutanese, again, know that their relationship with India is far deeper, much more important than anything they can achieve with the Chinese, right? So uh, there is a limit to how much the Bhutanese, no matter the pace of the negotiations, how much the Bhutanese can agree to whatever the Chinese. And it's not just about Indian pressure. I mean, people often mistake this as Indian pressure on Bhutan. But Bhutan has its own reasons to be extremely wary and careful of China. The Bhutanese see what has happened in Nepal, all right? Uh, The Bhutanese see what has happened in Tibet for the last uh, several decades uh, in terms of uh, questions of religious freedom, uh, uh, the destruction of the Tibetan way of life and so on. So even if in history, you know, Bhutanese Buddhism or uh, the Bhutanese kings and Tibetan Buddhism, Tibetan kings are not necessarily always uh, sort of aligned and often were in conflict. Uh, in the modern era, uh, you know, you have to worry about the larger power than your immediate historical issues. So in that sense, I think the Bhutanese are extremely careful 
in terms of their relationship with China. Uh, the Chinese are insistent on opening, opening diplomatic ties with Bhutan. Now, Bhutan doesn't have diplomatic ties with any of the P5, right? And it, yet it is only China that seems to have a problem with this particular situation. The other P5 countries all operate out of uh, New Delhi. And, uh, you know, previous Chinese ambassadors in New Delhi have also visited Bhutan under that ambit. So uh, this is an issue only because the Chinese seem to make an issue out of it. Uh, and of course, the Chinese are different from the other P5 countries in the Chinese neighbor, Bhutan, right? So, uh, and, you know, to going back to this idea of China's South Asia approach, it simply cannot countenance that one of their neighbors in South Asia refuses to have diplomatic ties with them because of the India factor. So, um, Having said that, there are Bhutanese that travel to China, they travel and study in uh, Chinese territory, uh, and uh, there are linkages. There is tourism from China, which is a pretty you know high-end kind of tourism, wedding tourism, and so on. Uh, so all of that is happening, and of course, Bhutan needs some money uh, from tourism. I mean, uh, its economy is also not in any great shape. So for all those reasons, Bhutan needs to remain engaged. Uh, needs to keep channels open with China. But I don't, I mean, I think uh, diplomatic ties are just a matter of time. This might eventually happen. But uh, resolution of the boundary dispute uh, on China's terms, essentially if the Bhutanese were to settle, they would have to settle on China's terms. I think that would be unacceptable. It cannot be settled on China's terms. Uh, frankly, the Chinese have just been ex increasing their claims over time. So the Bhutanese also have to worry about how uh, honest the Chinese will be in terms of sticking to their promises. So that's the other reason why the Bhutanese are staying wary of the Chinese. Uh, thank you for that rundown. Uh, for my last question, what is understated, understudied and does not receive enough attention in the discourse about China's relationship with South Asia? Well, not just with South Asia, but in general, uh, you heard me mention the Communist Party of China a few times. Uh, I mentioned the party state a few times. I think people tend to forget that China is not a normal country in the, uh, you know, in terms of its foreign policy, in terms of its security policies. China is a party state where the, the diplomats, the military are devoted to keeping one particular political party in power. It is not the interest of the Chinese people that is of concern to the PLA or the MOFA in China, but the interest of the Communist Party. I mean, why would you have something like Wolf Warrior Diplomacy? Which diplomat of any country would go out of his way to make himself or herself obnoxious and insult his or her host? It's only China that has done it. And the only logical explanation is that for them, it is not the reputation of the People's Republic of China that matters, but the interests of the Communist Party of China that matters. So I think in our studies of China, Chinese foreign policy, Chinese security policy, we tend to forget that this is a political party that is operating and a political party's interests will be very, very different from um, the national interests, you know, however we define them. So for me, I would like to see greater emphasis on this element when we study China. I mean, we say Chinese President Xi Jinping very easily, but Chinese presidents, the Chinese president's post is the least important of his three posts. General Secretary of the Communist Party is number one. Chairman of the Central Military Commission is number two, and then only the Chinese president. So if that is the case, you can be sure that Xi Jinping is only 
thinking from a general secretary lens rather than uh, and that is explains some of the innovation that you see in chinese foreign policy which is this party to party training sessions or the use of the united front work ambassadors uh, the ability of the communist party to deal with multiple political parties through the international international department both ruling parties and so the communist party has mous with all of these parties ruling parties as well as opposition parties throughout south asia uh, so uh, you know those are the elements that we tend to miss uh, uh, when we look at china as just any other political system as it said china is a army that became a party that became a state so uh, professor jacob it's been a pleasure having you thank you so much for joining me on interpreting india thank you so much yeah thank you so i have great questions and pleasure to be here so we'll be back in 2 weeks with a new episode To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.